The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding, or more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student, 
who is willing and able to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forth by Mr. Ash. For our next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Are our good works to be seen or secret? For this supposed Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash runs to the following verses as his proof text. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Quote, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Unquote. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Quote, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these to the following verses. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, quote, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thy alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thy alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly." Unquote. Finally, Matthew chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, quote, All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and, and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments." Unquote. Now the first thing which Mr. Ash and many others fail to recognize is that from a proper biblical theological context, none of us have any quote-unquote good works according to God. Romans chapter 3 and other chapters make this abundantly clear. God and God alone is good and holy apart from God. We are separated, fallen, in rebellion, and desperately wicked. The only time that we as humans can talk about quote-unquote good in relation to, to ourselves is when God is pleased, according to His mercy and grace, to impute Christ's finished work, His righteousness, His goodness to our account by faith. The second thing we should note is Mr. Ash's false equivocation and lack of discernment. Apparently, Mr. Ash would have us believe that a Christian can never demonstrate the fruit of good works because the moment that they do so, 
proves that hypocrisy must be the motive. Of course, Mr. Ash and others can self-assign good works on their part, and no matter what else they do, their motives are always pure. Likewise, Mr. Ash reads Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and fails to understand that these two and others are talking about, quote, good works, unquote, which come about or flow as an axiomatic result of having a new nature implanted within the believer via the new birth, which comes as a result of having a relationship with Jesus. Once God calls or draws fallen man to repentance to faith in the completed work of Jesus on the cross, we are reconciled or justified to God by Jesus' propitiatory sacrifice. Our old nature is buried with Christ, and we have a new nature implanted within us by His Spirit, which gives us power to be progressively sanctified into the image and likeness of Christ. Both Matthew and Peter talk about the reality of the transforming power of Christ, which cannot help but manifest itself in various fruits of the Spirit, all of which serve as a quote-unquote light, as in Matthew, which shines as a witness to the world still in darkness, and an honest conversation or good works, which are to be beheld by those around us. At the same time, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and others, Jesus warns the scribes and the Pharisees of hypocritical behavior. It must be remembered that the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as some today, were caught up in legalism. Essentially, both groups had come to believe that they could justify themselves or earn God's blessing by following rules and regulations, by good works and by outward behavior which was on a percentage better than most other people. One of the ways that the scribes and Pharisees did this was by tithing, i.e. alms, as in Matthew chapter 6. Here, the scribes and Pharisees had gotten into the habit of making a big production of giving money to God as a way of making themselves appear religious and holy. So they would do all of their giving very publicly and loudly, to draw attention to themselves. In essence, they had forgotten the focus and spirit of giving to God. Jesus was saying we shouldn't give to get acceptance or recognition from man. We give as a recognition that everything belongs to God and we are happy to give to God because of what God has given to us, not what others may or may not think of us. Thus, the giving is a transaction between the heart of the giver and God himself, not the giver and the court of public opinion. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter is talking about the natural outgrowth of good works and honest conversation which comes as a result of each true believer's relationship with Jesus Christ. In this respect, it is like a fruit tree. 
The truth and reality that a fruit tree has been planted, is alive and healthy, is witnessed by the fruit which the tree ultimately bears. If the tree bears fruit, we know that the tree is alive. However, we cannot separate the fruit and say we have a tree. Without it, the tree, its roots, the soil, water, and the sun, there will be no fruit. So it is with quote-unquote good works. From God's perspective, the only good works which he deems to be fully good are his own. Everyone else is fallen short, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Yet, God is pleased with his Son, Jesus, as is stated in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, and others. Quote, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and below a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him, unquote. Moreover, if we have a new nature, if we have Jesus' righteousness imputed to us by faith, then when God looks at us, he sees us covered by Jesus' finished work, and he is pleased. The key is to remember that what is being seen by God or by other men is not our works, our conversation, or our goodness, but rather Christ working in and through us by faith. Our goal is not to get caught up in believing the works and righteousness and goodness are ours, but are instead His as a matter of justification, sanctification, and grace. So in the end, there is no contradiction here. As a matter of secrecy, our mission as Christians is not to call attention to ourselves or to display our own supposed righteousness, holiness, goodness, or religiousness. Instead, our primary goal is to draw attention to the finished work and imputed righteousness of Jesus. Whatever fruits which manifest themselves visibly to the world are a byproduct of the grace and power of God and have nothing to do with our abilities. Mr. Ash's next question is, should we honor our parents or not? In order to arrive at this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, which says, quote, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And also Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, quote, Honor thy father and thy mother, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that thy days may be prolonged, and that it may go well with thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these verses to the following. Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. Quote, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household." He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Unquote. 
Also, Luke chapter 12, verses 51 through 53, quote, Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. For from henceforth there shall be five in one house, divided three against two, and two against three. The father shall be divided against the son, and the son against the father. The mother against the daughter, and the daughter against the mother. The mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law." Now, once again, Mr. Ash's questioning above stems from a basic breakdown of proper context, as well as discernment of the Bible, as well as the nature and character of God. To begin with, it must always be remembered that it is imperative that we start with the premise that God is the ultimate authority for all things and that he is sovereign, not man. Think of it as a pyramid. On the very tip of the pyramid's pinnacle, we have the truth and the reality of the chief purpose and aim of mankind, which is to give honor, glory, and praise to God in all that we do. God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, reality, purpose, and significance. There is nothing or no one who is higher From here, we proceed downward to a series of other things, each of which God has created, and all of which God has given uh, their own respective sphere of purpose, authority, meaning, etc., but all of which are ultimately subservient to the ultimate sovereign will and authority of God. For example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, we have God giving commandment according to his ultimate authority, that is, his will, that his people shall give honor to their parents. The question arises then, does Mr. Ash or anyone else who denies God care about what a make-believe God or a fraudulent book called the Bible supposedly commands? Answer, no, only to the extent that they can mock them. Consequently, if Mr. Ash or those who deny God and his word decide to honor their parents, that honor will only take the form that they define right according to their own opinion. So, the honor might take any form or none at all, and there is no baseline for ultimate authority degraded other than Mr. Ashes. A second question arises. What happens in families where you have parents, i.e. mothers and or fathers, who to one degree or another are themselves not obeying the ultimate authority of God? What, in those situations, is the ultimate obligation of the quote-unquote children of those parents, if so be that these quote-unquote children wish to honor God? Well, obviously, if such children truly want to honor God, then they will have the desire to honor their parents as well. But, 
If their parents are making demands or forcing decisions which conflict with God's ultimate authority, then what is the solution? The solution is that God's people are always called first and foremost to obedience to God and his word in context. So, provided that the parents and people in authority are demonstrating honor and obedience to God and his word, then there will never be a problem with those who are under those in authority showing honor and obedience to those who are in authority. The reason is that by doing so, those under authority demonstrate honor and authority to both those in authority, including God, who is the ultimate authority. In Matthew chapter 10 verses 35 through 37 and Luke chapter 12 verses 51 through 53, Jesus is simply pointing out the axiomatic reality which was always true. Namely, when push comes to shove, there can only be one ultimate sovereign source of authority. The single greatest question for all mankind is that asked by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Quote, he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Unquote. The answer to this question takes every human into one of two diametrically opposed directions. Either Jesus is simply another man, in which case he is not God, and there is no reason to worship, obey, or honor him. Or, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, our Deliverer, the Son of the living God. In which case, if he is, we owe him our honor, worship, and obedience above and beyond every other living thing in heaven and earth. It is only when we begin with Mr. Ash's priori bias that man is a sovereign authority in the universe that we then proceed to the logical conclusion that there is some human authority on earth who has license to veto God and has the authority of his word in context. However, we must remember that there is no contradiction when we correctly understand God's word in context because wherever and whenever people in authority, including parents, submit themselves to the ultimate authority of God and his word, there will never be any need for those under authority to be at variance or division against those in authority because if those under authority are submitting themselves to the ultimate authority of God and his word, then everyone is in harmony, they are at peace, and there is no reason for variance or division. Mr. Ash's next question is, who are we supposed to obey, man or God? In order to arrive at this apparent contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, which says, quote, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme. Unquote. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, quote, They say unto him, Caesar's, then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Unquote. Romans chapter 13, verse 1, quote, 
Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Unquote. Romans chapter 13, verse 7, quote, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, unquote. And finally, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, quote, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, and to be ready to every good work, unquote. Mr. Ash then compares these verses to Acts chapter 5, verse 29, which says, quote, Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Unquote. Now, essentially this question and its supposed contradiction falls under the same argument regarding the previous question asking, Should we honor our parents or not? Both questions deal with the issue of ultimate authority, which we have already discussed. Here in this question, the various entities who are in authority have been expanded to include ordinances of man, Caesar, i.e. the government, the higher powers, i.e. people or institutions with power which is greater than the individual in question, and principalities, powers, and magistrates. Once again, from a complete biblical worldview and context, the Christian, the child of God, understands, submits, and acquiesces to the reality that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, significance, and beauty. God is a God of order, rank, and structure, and creates all things accordingly. While there is currently rebellion as a result of sin and separation, all things are ultimately under the sovereign will and authority of God who is in control of all things. God creates, assigns, delegates, and sovereignly allows heavenly and earthly authorities who carry out their respective roles of authority. What Mr. Ash forgets is that insofar as God's creation is concerned, creation is currently still under the curse. This means that sin and rebellion, which are a part of the curse, affect God's creation, including those authorities in creation which God has created. Mr. Ash begins with the premise that man is good, man is the ultimate authority, and thus man, any man, every man, every other person, institution, source of authority, or government has authority over God, rather than submitting to the reality that God has authority over everything. As stated in the previous discussion regarding honoring parents, as long as any person, institution, or government is submitting to and honoring the ultimate authority of God, there will never be a problem with God's people submitting to the authority of that person, institution, or government. The reason is that both are in harmony to the ultimate authority of God and His Word. This is exactly what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, 
Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 7, as well as Titus chapter 3, verse 1, are all talking about. They are all referring to God's people showing respect to God by showing honor and respect to those God has given delegated authority, but only where that power and authority does not conflict with God's ultimate authority. Whenever and wherever those people, institutions, government, or other authorities create a conflict, disobey, or contradict God's authority, God's people should, as did Peter and the other apostles, respond by saying, quote, we ought to obey God rather than men, unquote. So, once again, rightly understood, this is not a contradiction as suggested by Mr. Ash. Instead, once again, we understand that all authority is sovereignly under God's authority. Then God's people can rightly be admonished to honor authority wherever and whenever that authority is in harmony with God's authority. At the same time, God's people can rightly be admonished to obey God and not man whenever and wherever that authority, no matter who or what it is, conflicts with God's ultimate authority. Mr. Ash's final question for this episode is, what number of animals were on the ark? In this case, Mr. Ash's confusion arises from reading the following verses. Genesis 6, verse 19, quote, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, unquote. Genesis chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, quote, Of clean beasts, and of beasts that are not clean, and of fowls, and of everything that creepeth upon the earth, there went in two and two unto all. Noah into the ark, the male and the female, as God had commanded Noah, unquote. And Genesis chapter 7, verse 15, quote, And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life, unquote. Mr. Ashton compares these to Genesis chapter 7, verse 2, quote, Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, unquote. Now here there are actually two things in these verses which are under discussion which Mr. Ash fails to distinguish in his supposed contradiction question. The first issue is that God here provides for the preservation of both man and animals. Since the pertinent issue is animals, in order to repopulate the earth after the flood, God chose the mechanism of saving a male and a female, i.e. two, or a pair. The pair in question would likely be selected from among what mostly corresponds to the family level in the current taxonomy. The second issue is that God also foresaw and prepared for the continued sacrifice of certain animals as a propitiatory type 
pointing towards the substance of Jesus who would be the ultimate final sacrifice for those God would redeem to himself. These animals had to be particular animals deemed as quote-unquote clean in order to qualify for the sacrifice God demanded. Thus, in the above verses, Noah is directed to bring two, i.e. one male and one female of every family kind into the ark in order to preserve and repopulate the post-flood world. At the same time, Noah is instructed regarding clean animals for sacrifice that he needs to bring both male and female in groups of seven. In order to better understand the above, let's use this analogy. Assume I am going to somehow destroy every fruit tree on the planet Earth. Let's further assume that every fruit tree in question requires a male and female version to cross-pollinate, flourish, and bear fruit. Finally, let's assume that I love a wood-burning fireplace, but the only wood that I can tolerate burning is plum and peach. With this in mind, if I wanted to repopulate the earth again with all of the fruit trees from before, and I also wanted to have regular fires in my fireplace, what would I do? Well, I would have to save two, i.e. one male and one female, of every kind of fruit tree. I would also, from among those trees, have to include an extra number of plum and peach trees in order to eventually be able to have enough to cut down and use them to burn in my fireplace. This is precisely the same mathematical equation being employed in the scenario with the ark. We have one male and one female, i.e. two or a pair, of every family kind as the basic number needed to repopulate the earth. Then we have an additional seven males and females of every clean animal, which is the basic number needed in order to provide for eventual propitiatory sacrifices. So, here again, there is no contradiction once we understand the purpose and the context of the numbers being used regarding the animals to be saved on the ark. In all, to date in this series, we have examined and answered 15 questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's Word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. 
However, in truth, these 15 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research, coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.